everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. It's my pleasure to be with you today. This is Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with... Hey, I'm Dr. Scott. It is episode 77. Amazing. Seven. I know. What are we going to do for 100? We need to start thinking about it now. We really should because it will come before we even know. Clearly, it will. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We are on a roll. Do you remember that first year when we were like, eh, <laughs> okay, we'll kind of get one out whenever. <laughs> I'm Can so we get proud one of out once a month? Maybe. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, the, the train is on its track. Right? It certainly is. And here it goes. Uh, we don't have a lot off the top as far as housekeeping goes, I think we're just carefully watching numbers and trying to decide what's safe for us to do as far as travel and events. And we have a couple things planned in the fall and stay tuned. We'll just let you know what's going on with that. We'll make some decisions in the next couple weeks or so. Yeah, we've also got some other things that we will be throwing out in the next couple of episodes as ideas for virtual events. As COVID has the potential to creep back up, we're going to go back and do some things that have worked really well. We had a great watch party, so it's mm-hmm. time for another watch party. We'd love to have as many of you show up and and take part because it was a blast last time. And then probably, you know, Zoom has a whole bunch of new features that allow a lot more interaction. And we could also do the meeting app, which if people want to download this free app on their phone, there's lots of interactional things that we can do, like for contests and games people winning and, prizes yeah. through games and stuff. So Have I think fun. that could be fun. Good. We'll keep, well, we'll, we will make it worth your while to spend an evening with us, I promise. <laughs> Ooh la la. Yes, we'll get creative if we can't get out to see you guys. But for our episode today, we are doing a little bit of a departure for yeah. what we normally do. We don't normally highlight one single case. And I, I feel like we said that when we did the Skid Row Slasher, but this is an unsolved one at that. And I feel like we are usually looking at the psychology of the perpetrator most times. And we don't have that here. We're going to, you're, that's a really great way to put it. Shiloh is that we're really looking at today more about motivations of what might've caused this to happen. Some of the ideas about what happened verge on conspiracy theories, but believable things. And we also want to certainly give a trigger warning for today that we will be covering pretty specifically issues around suicide in general. We'll give some specific information about suicide. So, you know, if that's something that is particularly challenging to you, like prepare yourself, I think everybody will be okay, but we just want to get you a heads up. Yeah, definitely. We're we're going to focus a little bit more on the assessment side, but It could be impactful to someone. And what is so bizarre about this case is the fact that the missing person involved was a part of a very elite law enforcement unit and does not fit the profile for the vast majority of people who go missing. No, he does not. However, he does meet some pretty strong bullet points for other issues that may have had something to do with his disappearance, at least as far as we're looking at it from what it was 1998, so many years later. The thing that gives us the ability to look at it with a pretty clear lens is there's so much evidence around the actual day of the event. And there's historical information from reliable sources that 
answer some questions and open up an entire encyclopedia of other questions, right? Yeah, definitely. It, it's like it starts near your, you're going to follow along with us and be like, all right, I can get on board with this as an interesting mystery. And then it kind of spirals in all these other areas. But obviously very interesting to both of us at some time or another. We have both worked in as law enforcement psychologists yeah. and in and with this particular agency. And this is the LA County Sheriff's Department. I I just want to take a brief moment to kind of set the scene and tone about the LA County Sheriff's Department just a little bit. I think if you're listening to this from afar, or even if you live here, it can be very confusing as far as the jurisdictions and the agencies when it comes to Los Angeles. So to lay that groundwork, the LA County Sheriff's Department is a very large law enforcement agency here in Southern California, one of the largest in the country. It is separate from the Los Angeles Police Department. So the police department, LAPD, only serves the actual city limits of the city of Los Angeles. Which is enormous. Which is huge (laughs) in and of itself. (laughs) It's a very big city. But the Sheriff's Department serves the entire county, which is like over 4,700 square miles. I mean, it's very big. We have a lot of big counties here in Southern California and LA City is inside of the county and you have a lot of police department, or I'm sorry, you have a lot of cities within the county that don't have their own police departments. So like I worked for a very small city within the county. We had our own PD, but the little pockets that don't have a police department, the sheriff's department patrols those They'll areas. Contract, right? The city will pay the county, or right. there's some sort of like way that the, that gets funded through yes. county services. Yes. So they they actually patrol the city that I live in, and they have every big specialized unit you can think of for a police department. I think we've talked about in our Night Stalker episode how their homicide division, homicide bureau is very well trained, one of the best out there. Not only do they take on the homicides in the cities in which they patrol, but for little cities like the one I worked in, we had maybe a homicide every other year. So our homicide detectives were not very experienced. So the sheriff's department would come in and run those investigations. They also do officer-involved shooting investigations for other small agencies that just don't have that happen very often because they are so experienced at it. Um, I was not aware of this until I was a law enforcement psych that LA County Sheriff's Department also has an elite trafficking unit because they hit larger than just the city, the entire, mm-hmm. almost, I mean, LA County is so huge and there's so much overlap with other sheriff's departments that they have some of the most elite investigators in sex trafficking and mm-hmm. trafficking just in general, as well as terrorist evaluating yep. terrorist threats because it is so huge and they've got specialized employees researching that. And Yeah, with, with the size, I mean, they almost have to be looped into all of these different task forces that are out there. They also have, they have their own academy, of course, and they allow outside agencies to participate in their academy. So I actually went to the LA County Sheriff's Academy my parents were deputies for this agency as well. So it felt kind of nice to feel like a little part of their legacy. And I basically grew up in their 
their stations because of my parents' occupation when I was little. I spent a lot of time running around sheriff stations. But they do a lot more than just what you think of with police and detective investigations and patrol. They also run a ton of different county locations where there's some sort of need for law enforcement or security. And the biggest are the court systems and the jails. And they're responsible for not just providing security there, but all of the logistics and everything that has to do with essentially inmates, transportation, bringing them from the bus up to the courtroom, being in the courtrooms. I'm sure people are used to seeing like bailiffs in the courtroom, and those are the sheriff's deputies in LA County, and definitely providing service in the jails. So that was where I wanted to jump in with sort of piggybacking information about the difference between sheriffs and police officers or deputies and police officers in Southern California. The process of becoming a deputy is similar to police forces with comparable training, but the way that you get to your specific or your particular chosen location, the place you want to go and do the majority of your time is that you have to go through this route that's pretty challenging. And that route is through the LA County Jail. So working custody at LA County Jail is in itself a specific set of skills and requirements that may play out in various different scenarios. So as an up-and-coming deputy, there's actually a good deal of thought as to where a person will be best suited, or you can look at it as like, where's the best place that the county can exploit your talents? I don't, and that's a weird choice of word of exploit because it has a positive connotation, not so much in today's language, mainly a negative one. But the reality is what I experienced there was seeing that for custody deputies that were working in general population, which is where your run-of-the-mill incarcerated criminals are kept Mm -hmm. with no what we would call special needs, there is a skill set that is required there that is comparable to working in a prison, except that there are no, there's no outdoors, there's no recreation, you're working with people that are really caged up and they are, the tensions are very high working in general population as opposed to working in a prison yard for a state facility. However, if you're in mental health as a deputy and Los Angeles has a huge mental health incarceration facility called LA County Twin Towers Correctional Facility. It's two towers in downtown Los Angeles where individuals who have committed crimes but are diagnosed with significant mental illness, they are housed there. So a lot of the people that are in the hiring and directing process, whether they're up the administrative chain, they will choose where a person is going to be best suited with their talents. And it really is important because I've seen deputies work with mentally ill inmates with unbelievable elegance and kindness and compassion. You would Mm -hmm. not expect it, but because that's just not what you would expect of law enforcement, really, you know, that's not what the general look is these days. However, even from the beginning, I saw that some of these deputies that were working as custody, they were really great with the mentally ill. So the problem is, I say this in a protective way because I saw many talented, responsible, 
high-integrity individuals that were at the receiving end of a lot of politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're extremely talented uh, across the board in almost any field, some of your immediate supervisors are going to put a lot of effort into keeping you there rather than helping you to move along your career path. And I saw this several times. So some people are better to working in general population versus those that might have a better understanding and patience for working with the incarcerated who have mental illness or maybe developmental issues. Working custody can derail your law enforcement career by five or more years. Sure. Mostly, I There yeah. was a hiring freeze when I was going through with my class. I think we were one of the last academy classes to process for the county because there was a freeze. Oh. The people I went to the academy with, they were stuck in the jails for like seven or eight years. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, it it had gotten a little bit shorter when I was working there. It may have crept back up though. And if you've pissed somebody off, you're going to be there even longer. You could be. And then that becomes a whole thing where do you want to derail your career further by taking it to the union and all this stuff? It can be very difficult. Because look, most law enforcement deputies, they come into the profession because they want to be out in the field. Right. Exactly. That's exactly. why they want to do it. They want to be working in the community. They came into it to be law enforcement. They didn't plan on working custody, even though it's very clear for anybody that applies for LA County deputies or L, I'm sorry, LA County Sheriff's Department that like you got to do your time here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then again, there are people who are really great, really good employees, and they see people zoom past them because of politics. Like maybe they know somebody or they're related to somebody. It's no different from many other organizations or many other careers, you know, and for some people that have made it that far, experiencing the reality of working custody can lead to a lot of bitterness. And when I was working as a law enforcement psychologist, I discovered that a great deal of frustration among custody was on all levels, including CAs which are called custody assistants. So they are non-sworn civilians who work alongside the deputies in the towers and in general population. And they do a lot of the work. It is, and that in itself becomes a clash between almost like a caste system of who's a sworn deputy versus a non-sworn civilian employee. Because many times there's a lot of overlap in those duties, even though they're supposed to be a very clear demarcation. So that can cause a lot of conflict as well. And contrary to popular belief, the largest law enforcement agencies in the U.S. are struggling to keep up filling the spots. You know, you may think that, oh, the population is going to be increasing this much in the next two years. That means we need to get X amount of officers or deputies out in the community. Just catching up to what the needs are, the community can take as long as a decade. Because when an increase in staffing is recognized, it takes all that time to get up and running. There's extensive screening, which weeds out those that aren't appropriate. There's extensive training that's selective. And then there's evidence that both of these aspects may be weeding out actually some of the better officers because the screening process is not keeping up with the needs of the agencies as law enforcement continues to evolve. Yeah, that's a whole uh, other episode in and of itself of the problems in hiring and law enforcement right now, especially this day and age. And when you have violent crime rates going up, but funds to the police being stripped away, there's just, there's a, it's very complex. It is very, very complex. Very. It is not a simple answer that people want it to be. 
No, it isn't. Well, thank you for that. I mean, that's great insight from the inside. I remember touring those facilities when I was in undergrad and we did a a tour of Twin Towers and very eye-opening for a young college student (laughs) to tour your first jail system. So let's get into our story. I want to let you guys know that the majority of the source information from today is from a brilliant 2015 article in LA Magazine written by Claire Martin. And the article is called The Deputy Who Disappeared. And it's excellent. It goes above and beyond what we're going to cover today. And I believe that this was going to be turned into a movie, but I don't know where that is at. I think that was a couple years back. That was in the works. So... Let's go back to 1998. Where were you all in 1998? (laughs) Seems like many, many moons ago. But this story starts about midday on June 11th, 1998. And LA County Deputy Jonathan OJ had parked his pickup truck into a parking area of the Devil's Punchbowl Natural Area. It's part of the Angeles National Forest. It is about 60 miles northeast of downtown Los Angeles in the Antelope Valley. And so for us here in Los Angeles, if you go over the San Gabriel Mountains, that is the backdrop north of LA. It's on the other side of that. So you would have to drive around that mountain range, but easily accessible from areas that some people maybe have heard of like Palmdale, Lancaster. It is like no man's land out there. I'm sure it's much more built up now, but up until this time, it it was pretty vast and desolate. It's definitely a desert landscape. And this area is ridden with just deep canyons and sandstone boulder formations. It's just a a really neat area when you look at it, very Southern California. But John, he was a canine handler with the Elite Special Enforcement Bureau, or SEB as they're called, over at the Sheriff's Department. And SEB consists of their SWAT team, their emergency services, and then their canine handlers. I mean, these are the most highly trained best guys in the best shape, defensive tactics, firearms, all of those things is just what they do every day because this is their essentially their full-time assignment. The agency is so large that they can be fully dedicated to these units. He had previously been a sniper with the SWAT team, had been involved in a couple of officer-involved shootings, at least two that I was able to find, in which he actually had to take the life of a perpetrator who was shooting back or had hostages in these really high-profile crisis type of situations. But he had transferred over to the K-9 unit, and he was a handler with them. He had been a deputy for 18 years up until this point and was 38 years old. Prior to his career with the Sheriff's Department, he was a paratrooper in the Army's Special Forces unit. So, I mean, this is quite a guy. This guy already at 38 has a pretty amazing career. I think we can categorize him as a pretty hard charger, probably pretty type A. This was a guy who was six feet tall, lean, excellent shape. He was an avid runner. And I think avid is kind of a not enough of a word for him and the type of running that he did. He would he did a 50 mile 
ultra marathon just the weekend before this weekend that we're talking about that he goes missing, but he was an avid outdoorsman. He had organized trips and hikes to the top of Mount Whitney several times. So Mount Whitney is the tallest peak in the lower 48. I mean, this guy was like a madman. <laughs> if you're talking about fitness and just goals when it comes to law enforcement, he was really at the top of his game at this point. So this day he sets out, like I said, to go on this hike slash trail run because of the the terrain there. It kind of fits into both of these categories. He gets up that day. He filled his tank with gas. He parks in the area that I was talking about, puts a sunshade up, locks his doors, slings a green kind of shoulder bag over his shoulder and takes off on his run. Wouldn't be unusual for a cop who's going on a run to have a shoulder bag or some sort of bag on him because generally, and if it's a more dangerous area, they might be carrying their firearm with them. But he planned to be gone for quite a while. This wasn't just like a little hour hike or something like that. He had actually let his wife know that he would be home by dark. So June, that could be relatively late. That could be eight o'clock-ish. So he was planning on being gone eight hours or so. It turns out that his later, his badge and his wallet were found inside the vehicle. Again, not hugely suspicious to me. A lot of times though, I will say law enforcement officers, if you're going to have your gun with you, you have your badge with you too, because if something goes sideways and you have to get into an incident where you end up using your firearm, it's probably a good thing to have your badge with you to prove who you are. So it's pretty unusual to have one without the other. You also don't want to be in a situation where you only have your badge on you and say, you know, bad guy comes in to rob a place, puts everyone on the ground, searches you, finds your badge, but you don't have a firearm. There have been cops who have been put in that situation who have been executed for being police officers and they had no way to defend themselves or anyone else. So it's this rule of thumb to have both together, but I will just throw that out there too. Make of it what you will. John was known to be a very reliable worker. He wasn't somebody that skipped work. He wasn't somebody who called in sick. He loved to work the night shift with his canine, whom he was very, very close to and protective of. He just liked working nights to be where the action was and get the most use out out of his dog. There were some scenarios that I read about where he wouldn't send his dog into certain situations because they would have to be separated and he couldn't protect him. Like he just did not want to to lose that dog to a bad guy, even though sometimes we put canines in that position as a tool of, you know, helping in tactics for law enforcement to where their lives might be at risk too. But he was known to be very, very protective of that dog. The, the weekend following his disappearance, I think it's really interesting because he was planning on participating in a 100-mile trail run. And if that doesn't sound awful enough, <laughs> you know, this was something that needed a lot of planning. And he actually had to put like a support team and a crew together and had all of these people in place, ready to go. You know, you have to have people along the route with you, supplies. All of that was just a lot of logistics to it. And in training for this, he would go several times a month to the Devil's Punch Bowl to go run this certain trail 
because the terrain was kind of similar as to what he was going to expect to do on this 100-mile run. So this was not a place that he didn't know. I'm sure he knew every crack and crevice of this area, as well as just being a really experienced outdoorsman, often bragging at times that he could get lost or survive out in the wilderness for days and weeks. He was just that kind of survivalist. Also, the morning that he disappeared, I thought it was worth noting that he was actually, he had put in a transfer to come off of the canine unit and had asked his old boss, who was now working at the shooting range, if there was an opening there and if he could transfer. And his old boss was someone that he trusted and he opened up to him that he had been having some marital problems and that the change in schedule would probably be nice rather than running around and working nights. He would sort of have a regular shift to work at the shooting range, either with recruits or qualifying officers during the daytime. It would just be better for his family life. And he had a five-year-old daughter named Chloe as well. And they had approved his transfer, so it was in the works, but he had changed his mind and let his boss know that... It looked like the marriage was probably over, so he wanted to cancel his transfer. But he, that all of that information had already been communicated back and forth. And the boss said that the day that John went missing, that morning he missed a call from him. The boss missed a call from John. And he surmises that he was probably just calling to make sure that the transfer had been canceled and that he was okay to stay at SEB. But he doesn't know because he never answered that call. He never got that call. He wasn't in the office yet. So I think it's, I throw these tidbits in here to kind of give us an idea of his frame of mind, kind of what was going on with him, especially I think it's really important to look at the victimology of behaviors leading up to the incident because he goes running and he never comes back. So this is, again, when I'm talking about someone who does not meet the criteria for being a missing person, this is it. This is one of the biggest outlier cases I've ever heard of. Yeah, definitely. So when we look at the timeline of his run, and then I'll get into the search a little bit here. He takes off around noon, like I had said, and then there's a group of school kids who are at this nature area with their teacher. And the significant thing about this is that John had happened to be a guest speaker with his dog in the classroom of this teacher. So they had had personal interaction before. So there's recognition. Absolutely. There's recognition. John stops and talks to them. And then he goes out on, goes back out on his run and kind of says something to the teacher about, oh yeah, I'm going to be out until about sunset. So that tracks with what his wife said of when he was supposed to be back. This teacher recognizes him, talks to him. Someone saw him out on the trail that day. That's why we have the description of what he was wearing and what he had, you know, what color his bag was and all of that. And then there's two camp employees who also saw him running on a trail that day. No problems, not in distress, you know, nothing unusual about what they saw. And then about 6 p.m., a third camp employee sees him, has his green bag on, and he's actually heading back towards the parking lot at that time, which makes sense. If he's, you know, a couple hours out and planning to be back by sunset, he is on the tail end of his run. But shortly after that last sighting, sometime after six o'clock, 
there's a resident in the area who reported hearing a single gunshot, which I will say not unusual to hear gunshots in the desert for one, (laughs) but it's a piece on this timeline. It's also really important for everything that we're going to cover following this. That timeline, I think, is very important because it belies all of the other potential factors for what might have happened. People like to conge- This is a very popular case, and there have been some other great podcasts that have sort of taken it from this unexplained disappearance. But this timeline that you just presented really narrows the focus to what could have possibly happened, I think. I think so too. And I have some thoughts about the single gunshot. You know, if he had come upon someone and had to fire his own weapon, we're not really trained to just fire one shot, to be honest. I mean, there's at least a double tap going on, two shots, especially back then. People would have been trained to do two shots and then stop and assess. That has changed slightly and obviously can be different from situation to situation. If you shoot someone, you put them down with one round, then there's no reason to keep shooting. But it would be unusual, I would think, for that to happen. A single gunshot, I'm guessing people are thinking, okay, it only takes one gunshot to kill yourself. So there's that. Or he could have been a victim on the side of a single gunshot. You know, there's a lot with that. Or it could have been completely unrelated and could have been some dude shooting his gun in his backyard out in the desert. At 11 o'clock, his wife finally reports him missing. Remember, she was expecting him back at around dark. His immediately deputies who actually have the jurisdiction of this area, LA County Sheriff's deputies, they get to the scene by 1130. Search and rescue is deployed. His truck is sealed off as a crime scene. By the next morning, his entire unit of SEB, the search and rescue, his unit, canines were out, like everybody was out there searching for him. People had it in their minds because he was such a go-getter and so tough that, all right, John has gotten injured. He broke an ankle or something. We're gonna, Let's go find him. He's just hunkered down waiting for us to come rescue him. And he might have a bruised ego. You know, that was definitely the mindset of his peers and people out there looking for him. By the third day, still nothing. And the amount of resources that were brought in was crazy. You know, we know he's former army. There were Army Blackhawk helicopters brought in, mounted horse units brought in. At the time, you know, their technology was using thermal imaging devices, infrared technology, all of that was being used. There was even a, well, I will say friend, but it sounds like he was starting to start a romantic relationship with this woman. She was a friend who was also an ultra marathon runner. And she had mentioned that he had talked in the past about wanting to do this overnight walkabout. And so she and a couple of other of their mutual friends would even go out at night and call his name through the canyons because they thought, you know, maybe he's out there and Maybe he's heading back because he went on this this walkabout. But within six days, the search was stopped. And basically, it was concluded that this was a suicide without any evidence leading to that or contrary to that. I mean, there was really nothing. But I think this is the first of the theories that we need to explore 
since the search was called off by the higher ups with this conclusion in mind. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that's that's a lot. So reportedly, I mean, and there's so much out there with like, especially the major article that you talked about where there were these statements that were given by people. I find that there's a little bit of conflicting information and I, I really do wonder how reliable historian all these people were. Sure. But uh, at this point in time, who can say the last words allegedly that John spoke to his wife, Deborah, at that time were on the morning of the run. She says that she remembers John saying, have a nice life and tell Chloe I love her. I find that fascinating because given law enforcement and typologies and who this guy was, I mean, there's a lot of things that are very interesting and confounding to me, but that's not the kind of a thing that someone says. I mean, that's just, unless it was part of a contextual other argument, like, hey, we're done, have a nice life, I'm going out for my walk now. It just doesn't make sense to me. But clearly, the marriage to Deborah was falling apart, and there is a lot of evidence that points to that. His sister reported he was not happy with the marriage or the living situation. He did give several personal items away. Mm -hmm. That is a big red flag that's very concerning. I do think that it is balanced by other issues that we come back to. What it all comes back to for me is... People saw him coming back at the end of the day. So you're going to take one last hike that's part of the training for an ultra, but you're going to kill yourself. That just doesn't add up to me. It really doesn't. So he had Patrick's running medals as well as climbing and hiking memorabilia that had been on the walls of a spare room. And he had returned a family heirloom bookshelf to his in-laws. And he had given to the female running friend his father's gold necklace. So that is concerning. When somebody gives away things that are very precious to them, that is a big, definite counterpoint to future orientation when you're doing an assessment for suicidality. Sure. And I think there's things when you do a suicide assessment that you don't want to try and like explain away for yourself, you know, so you don't have to sit with the uncomfortable truth that this person might be high risk. Right. But I think there are some things here that if he and Deborah had called it quits, remember, you know, he, he talked to his boss and was like, never mind, the marriage is off. Like I'll just stay on the canine unit. Would he be packing up some stuff to move it? Would he be getting rid of furniture that he can't take with him? I mean, maybe, and he's getting ready to start this new life with a girlfriend. And those things that are important to them, those things, those medals that were reflective of his accomplishments oh, and this yeah. part of his life, his recreational life that were very, very important to him. I think that's a really good counterpoint as well. Generally, the basic boilerplate assessment for suicide is you want to look at the answers to six questions. And it's it's called the Columbia Suicide Protocol. And you ask, like, within the last month, have you wished that you were dead? Have you wished you could go to sleep and not wake up? Have you actually had any thoughts about killing yourself? So, and then it's sort of a rubric of if yes, go here. If no, go to another question. So if somebody really has had thoughts of wanting to end their life, you ask probingly, have you thought about how you would do this? Because that's going to give you an idea if they have a plan and how far along in the preparation and actuation of that plan they might be. Have you had any intention of acting on these thoughts of killing yourself? So sometimes people can have a plan. Well, if I was going to do it, 
I would take poison or I would hang myself or I would shoot myself. But then you ask further, do you have the intention to act on it or is it kind of something that you keep as a thought in your head? Uh, Or you think you have this plan, but you're definitely not going to act on it. And then the next question would be, okay, have you actually started to work out the logistics of how you would carry this plan out? And do you now intend to carry this plan out? So that leads to the end question, which is, have you done anything, started to do anything or prepared to do anything to end your life? So some examples would be collected pills, obtained a gun, given away valuables, as we were talking about, written a will or suicide note, held a gun, but changed your mind, cut yourself, but then decided not to go through, prepared to hang yourself, those kind of things. So that actually is sort of the basic of what we would look. And if you're scoring high on that, then it's time for hospitalization or a particularly rigid safety plan for preventing it. Yeah, exactly. And, And suicidal ideation is a spectrum and people can be... Yep on one end one day and in another place another day, but they can move back to not intending to do it. So it's really, these assessments are a snapshot of what is happening with that person at that time that you're doing the assessment. And yeah, you have to, you have to probe so much. I mean, there is also the phenomenon of people that are in such hopeless places in their lives depending on what's going on, could be medical conditions or financial conditions or chronic long-term issues. And a person can have no intention of killing themselves, but also have it in their back pocket as, well, if I do need a way out, I could always do this. And actually, to some extent, that can provide them with some comfort is like, I do have a way out if it gets really bad. But as a clinician, if you know you have a client that has that get out of life card in their back pocket, you always really want to be gently reorienting the conversation depending on their mood of like, so how are we doing today? Mm -hmm. Anyway, you get where I'm going with that. So giving more information on the phenomenon of suicide as well, that there are types that were developed a couple of hundred years ago, very interestingly by Emile Durkheim. He was a French philosopher and he's really kind of thought of as one of the grandfathers of sociology. And he divided the motivation for suicide into some basic categories that kind of hold up and kind of don't. And there are limitations, but they are really interesting. The first thing that he said is that some people will end their lives based on egoistic suicide, where an individual becomes socially isolated or feels that they have no place in society, so they destroy themselves. And this is the suicide of the self-centered person who lacks altruistic feelings and is usually cut off from the mainstream of society. So this is someone who is really not thinking in the big picture as far as like interpersonal relationships, connection to others, or may not have that. So there's nothing that is tethering them to relationships in the world. So this also feels very like French dramatic, um, you know, 200 years ago Uh (laughs) example of thoughts about suicide. Right. So then like building on that, he gives an example or sort of the definition of altruistic suicide. And this is the kind of suicide that results from 
like the over integration of the individual into their societal norms. So I'm going to do this like a financial reason. I'm going to take my life because the insurance policy will make sure that my family is taken care of. There's one called endomic suicide. This is the type of suicide that's due to certain breakdown of what the individual considers to be social equilibrium. So suddenly after like a very quick change in the person's life, such as a bankruptcy, winning the lottery, something massive changes and it's very quick. So a sudden precipitating event or change. And then he also says that there's fatalistic suicide. So some person who just commits suicide because there is no way out of the solution. This is a person like, and he gave examples from his time period would be someone who's a slave or someone who is a barren woman, which of course, that is such a misogynistic Western <laughs> culture. It's like, what? yes, this poor woman who has no ability to have children. But then again, at that time, if you were a barren woman and you were not able to provide an heir, right. then that was a big part of your identity and your worth as an individual. Thank God we've moved on from that. Have so we? there's a lot of criticism of this, clearly. What was that? I said, have we? <laughs> Yeah. The critical evaluation of Durkheim's theory is that he put way too much emphasis on singular social issues. And maybe that's because he came up with this in 1858. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I think... What about assessments What from your end? Well, I, let me bring us up to date a little bit more in looking at assessment. And particularly, I want to talk about it when we are looking through the lens of law enforcement or for those who are law enforcement officers who have suicidal ideation. So for the most part, most folks who develop some sort of suicidal ideation and especially law enforcement, there is really an interpersonal theory at play here that I like to look at where there has been a failure of a relationship, like the recent or maybe an impending divorce or breakup. But, and I'll get to that, I'm going to talk about something called the deadly triad with law enforcement. But for somebody who develops suicidal ideation, they have to, of course, first develop a desire to die. I mean, I think it's really hard for us to wrap our head around this if we have not been in a place where we're so in so much psychological pain that we think that suicide is an option. And like you said, there are people that kind of keep it in their back pocket and it's always an option here. And that's very hard to understand if, if you haven't been there, or you haven't spoken to people who have been there or researched this enough. And even if you have, it's still hard to conceptualize, but someone with suicidal ideation has to develop a desire to die. And that is usually there's usually a couple of things involved there, a feeling of what's called thwarted belongingness. So it's when, again, interpersonally as the lens we're looking through, they feel like a complete loss of social support, that they're, they, it has just totally been broken down or dissolved. People have walked away or it's, it's gone because now they're incarcerated many different reasons, but their perception is that there is a total loss of social support. There's also another element to that called perceived burdensomeness, where you the person thinks that by living, they are a burden to other people. And it's interesting because in John's case, there are reports of family members who said, oh no, like, he would not choose to die by suicide because he had a really strong bond with his daughter. But children aren't always a deterrent. 
to suicide. And people think it is, but a major component to suicidal ideation is that if you feel like you're a burden to others, including your children, and that they'll be better off without you, that could be actually part of the line of thinking which fuels goes, it. Right, which goes all the way back to Berkheim. We were talking about those first two, the altruistic versus the, what was number one? Egoistic. Egoistic. Yeah, those social connections are lost, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So once a person has kind of developed this desire to die, they then have to develop what we call acquired capacity. And this is the ability to overcome those natural human reflexes that we have to stay alive and survive. They have to overcome that. They basically have to overcome the fear of their own death. So it's interesting because with this component... We see this as a very different concept, not a different concept, but almost as if this happens first for people in careers where they are surrounded by death, suffering, human misery, suicides, trauma all the time. So we're talking cops, firefighters, emergency room, medical staff, individuals, if you want to think of the word desensitized, they're kind of desensitized to death already because it's around them. So it's not as if they flow through these concepts the way that I'm explaining them. It's almost as if we would move acquired capacity up to the top. It's already there. And then they develop the desire to die because of whatever's happening in their world. So then after those things are in place, then comes sort of the parts you were talking about, the intent, the means, and the plans. And when we look at law enforcement officer suicides, do a a psychological autopsy after those happen, there are three things that are very prevalent in the lives of these officers. And we call that the deadly triad. And that consists of underlying untreated depression, usually some sort of substance abuse issue. And then the recent loss of a romantic relationship is usually the last straw there. So I'm sure you have been, you know, you've been around law enforcement officers a long time as well, Scott, to think of people who have, who drink too much, who probably have depression going on and who are getting divorced. We've all known people in that boat, a lot of them, a lot Yeah, it's one of the, I remember there was a great book called The Choir Boys that was about Mm -hmm. New York police officers and the only accepted substance is alcohol. So that's why there's such a high prevalence of alcoholism. Thankfully, there's a lot more treatment for law enforcement now than there ever has been. But I know also in sort of the Southeast and Appalachian areas, like a lot of law enforcement that was also impacted by the oxycodone that got dumped into that whole area. I mean, it affected everybody, right. but... Well, it did, and, it, and we, we see that a lot. I mean, with injuries on duty, people are getting hooked on the opioids as well. So that's and number that's two prescription to alcohol. medication, yeah. Yep, yep, absolutely. So, you know, that gives a little context just to looking at law enforcement suicides. As we bring our listeners along with us of these different theories of, you know, what was going on in John's life... But a month before his disappearance, Deborah, she described this really scary situation where they had been driving down the road and they're in the middle of an argument 
And she claims that John took out his loaded firearm, held it to his head, and basically said, do you want me to just kill myself? And that one is is what would I, if I were evaluating this, I would put that in the category of basically a rehearsal behavior. So when you were talking about asking people what they've done to prepare, mm-hmm. even if it's impulsive, like it sounds like this was, he is still t- doing a motion of taking a loaded firearm and putting it to his head. So he has just desensitized himself a little bit more to that action, to that behavior that is on the path of completing a suicide. So I thought that was an interesting piece of information. I agree. I think that's interesting. I think it's necessary to look at. It is, I I do wonder with all due respect, is Deborah a reliable source of information? Is she a reliable historian? I don't know because on one hand, this guy had everything together. That seems like a very outlandish expression. However, as most of us know that are in mental health, there is a type of relationship and interaction you have with your intimate partner that is not reflected in the outside world. So this might have been one of those moments where he was letting that part of himself be expressed. Once again, it's all conjecture. I still lean towards like, did that really happen? I don't know. I, I think I have to take it as... If it, collateral information is really important when you're doing a suicide assessment. Absolutely, absolutely. And I have made phone calls to girlfriends and wives of officers that I'm concerned about to ask specifically about these things because if they know what's going on in the home and it's stuff that this right. guy is not telling me, it at least is a piece of information that I'm going to consider that is going to give me a third person's perspective of what's happening And like I said before, I think we need to take this information, leaning on worst case scenario. If, you know, if I were to say, is he high risk or is he medium risk? This would put him over to high for me. And I'd rather err on the side of caution that way. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Um, But I I hear you. I mean, I I think all of that's the hard part, right? Is that you just don't know. And anyone's self-report could be anything. I mean, they can make, make anything up. I guess what I would like to know more about is what were the problems in the relationship prior to this? Sure. To me, that's just not enough information. And that kind of takes me back to family work and couples work. And I want I want to know more. And as I'm saying this, please don't, I, I feel badly for Deborah. She absolutely had a, a horrific loss. And her story since that time has been incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, I say that with great respect to her loss that affected her life very significantly. But it I is, would say, I would say if this did happen, there was a lot more that happened too that we just don't know about. That's what I mean, right? Yeah. It just uh, coming out, there, there's had to be more. So maybe, maybe at some point that will come out. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place. And it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So what are some of the other theories besides suicide is that he was murdered, that there was foul play, so that he might have been killed by gangs or bikers. It's completely a plausible theory 
for that area, like you said, it is the Badlands. And it's not just the Badlands geographically. There's a lot of shit that goes on in the Angeles National Forest. Oh, yeah. Angeles National Forest is sort of known as like a as a body dumping place. Uh-huh. It is known for a lot of meth labs. There are things that certainly could happen. And a few days after John's disappearance, a woman allegedly connected to one of the Antelope Valley's outlaw biker groups supposedly told law enforcement that John was quote unquote taken care of after his running took him right across the scene of either a criminal act or criminal activity. And that his death was to cover that up. Another tip came in from an informant who allegedly claimed that a biker uh, drug dealer claimed that John was going to be a hero and was taken care of after he had discovered something on his jog. Hmm. So again, informants, sometimes really good information and sometimes not the greatest or most reliable source of information at all. And outlaw biker gangs exist and are a huge problem here in Southern California. We have every major outlaw biker gang that you can think of. There is a There are multiple chapters here and especially in the Antelope Valley. And like you said, if you're going to go do something bad, go to the desert and do it because you have vast open space, whether you are cooking meth or burying bodies. The desert is wide open for that, but it, yeah. it is it is very much a problem still and definitely through the late 90s, very problematic. But see, on the other side, there was Detective Joe Holmes who really took a deep interest in this case, and he said that he had done in-depth research about John's disappearance, and he was able to speak closely with several of the six, oh my God, six meth lab producers in the area. And this is his quote. At the beginning, I thought he met with foul play, but we went out and interviewed all the witnesses, and I couldn't find anything to suggest it. All those folks we talked to either said they'd lied about their original information, or we caught them in the lies. Mm. I found that very interesting. So other leads and witnesses came in in more recent years. A woman claimed to know where his body was buried. A man contacted the task force saying he was present the day the deputy was murdered. Another person reported seeing OJ return back to his truck in the Devil's Punch Bowl parking lot at dusk before walking back out with his backpack in the direction of two armed bikers, then heard screaming. Uh, I, I mean, that just really seems... He's really painting a picture there, isn't it? Right. Like the two armed dramatic. bikers just like waiting Yeah, with go their get guns. your backpack. Yeah, we'll come with us. Out. Yeah, um, I mean, it, there, there was, you know, I think you just mentioned that in more recent years, I mean, there were, you can read more about this again in Claire Martin's article, but there was a giant task force involving the DEA that was put together to investigate... A lot of these outlaw biker gangs and meth operations that was just too big for the sheriff's department to tackle. So they had to bring in federal resources. So that's where some of this information comes in. And it's easy to think, okay, if this stuff was going on out there, did he come across something? But... Eh, the murmur and rumor of some very unreliable witnesses. I don't know. Yeah, I have doubts about that as well. The next theory, corruption or it's an internal job. So was he killed out on the trail that day by a fellow deputy for the purposes of keeping him from spilling information about links to a meth lab that law enforcement was covering up? 
Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Um, uh, in 1999, there was a homicide detective, Larry Joseph Brandenburg, started investigating the disappearance. And he learned from another deputy sheriff that OJ may have been murdered and another deputy may have been involved. And then Brandenburg's captain gave him permission to reopen the cold case, to which he then contacted Darren Hager to help him with the investigation. Hager and Brandenburg were building confidence that OJ was murdered and a deputy sheriff might be involved. He, Brandenburg was eventually taken off the case completely after presenting his investigation results to the command staff. Now, that's never a good look, right? Right. So essentially, he was like, hey, I think there's some deputies that are dirty and that may have been linked to John O.J.'s death. And essentially, the captain was just enraged and was like, you will not take this to anybody and like kind of took the file away from him. So, Which is absolutely the stupidest fucking thing you can do to have it actually have that level of arrogance and think that it's not going to get out. Uh, right. I mean, right. It's, I mean it's, eventually. it's so crazy. I mean, even then, Darren Hager, the other investigator, was fired for his role. Yeah. He sued the county for wrongful termination in 2018. After all these years, it was still going uh-huh. on as wrongful termination, and he won the case. He sure did. He got millions of dollars from the county. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. I'm I'm lucky he's alive too. Oh I mean, well, it's yeah. That level of corruption. I'm glad he and Brandenburg survived it. And then around this time, L.A. County Special Enforcement Bureau had been caught in an investigation relating to corruption involving meth production and traffickers. Mm. So though that investigation and research turned up about 50 suspicious incidents involving deputies. It is one of the things is that within law enforcement there are different categories and personalities, and you know. Law enforcement in a police organization is so many times focused on densely populated urban areas. Mm -hmm. And then you switch over to deputies that are basically out there on the range like cowboys. There's a lot more room for behavioral drift. I'm not making a broad statement. I'm just saying that when there's not immediate oversight and you're not being held to account by your peers... It, yeah. it can happen, right? Uh, yeah. I'm not I'm not saying I know. I'm just saying that this is a very interesting this is to me the one that feels like something happened. And what did you oh, I know what it was during that investigation too, of all of the involvement of the deputies. When they started investigating the deputies' homes, drugs and counterfeit bills were found in a deputy's home. So yeah, so you it have was found. I mean, there's there. actually evidence supporting that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And one of John's former bosses over at SEB, a retired captain, he is living in Idaho now, and he has been conducting his own investigation for the past decade because he wants to know what happened to John. And he's been hunting down leads, and essentially his investigation, he theorizes that John... I don't have this stuff to list out to you as far as evidence as to what has led him to this. I don't think he's revealing it, to be honest. So it does feel like a hole. But he says that John didn't even go on his hike at all that day. Hmm. That he did not make it there. He believes from his sources and his evidence that John was killed and that his body had been taken to Idaho and disposed of there. I mean, Claire Martin... I'm sorry. So this is, I mean, I think this is fascinating, but I'm confused. So is he saying 
that everything these witnesses have said is incorrect and he wasn't even on the trail or he made it to the parking lot and didn't go on the trail and was not seen coming back. I don't know. I mean, I okay. when I read this, I think it's in direct conflict with him being out on the trail. Again, like it's, people that don't know John could have seen a man running on the trail, but we that teacher and that the class, teacher, that's, like they knew him, that right? right there, exactly. That's what I come that's back a to. Huge point. Yeah. So Claire Martin in her article, she actually goes out to visit this man to interview him for her story, and he's like digging up spots and having cadaver dogs come out like he's got information of areas he's actually looking at to where he thinks in idaho interesting that idaho is where many cops from southern california retire and have property i mean it is cops are very very familiar with that state so it's not like it's kind of this random state where they took him if they took him there. So I think that's just an interesting tidbit that like, if you're moving to Idaho, have fun because it's cop land out there. Retired cop land. (laughs) What's really funny too, is that it's been retired cop land for many years. And then it's also in the past eight years, it has become elite, rich Hollywood producers buying huge parcels of land and interesting um, vacation homes. And now really in Boise and across Idaho, they are like anti-California. They don't want anybody from California coming. Oh. So it's like they don't even want cops coming. They're like, nope, we're done. Enough of you from California. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, but with both of these theories about murder, again, right. her article goes into a lot more background and detailed information if if you're interested, of course. We'll we'll put that right in the show notes as well as our our resources, of course. Right. And then we have another possibility that he of his own volition was intentionally missing right yep his sister seems to believe this so i'll I'll get to that but can you tell us a little bit about why people go missing in general well well, look first of all let's say it's not illegal to disappear on purpose it's not a crime it can be devastating to friends and family and community but you know investigations can be lacking because really like what's the duty of law enforcement here if everything looks like this is a person just deciding they're going to nope out of their current life that's a great question what's going to do i you know what is the expectation what is their duty if it's not illegal then you know, this is what we hear in case after case of missing person, whether it's Maura Murray or Brendan Lawson, like how much of an investigation is done if they don't have anything pointing to a crime or foul play. Yet, what if it is that and they haven't taken all the precautions to preserve evidence or search as much as they should? It's a very tricky thing because the statistics show that most people reported missing come back. And certainly for the family or loved ones, if someone's missing and they're going to law enforcement and law enforcement that may be a little bit more savvy and go, hey, I got to tell you, just from the surface look at this, it looks like this is somebody who wants to disappear. That's going to be devastating to a family member. And their reaction may be very strong to that of like, no, that's not possible. And so they're looking at it through a lens that where they find the most comfort that this couldn't possibly happen, that someone I love would leave like this. So we don't have solid data, but many times we literally just don't know who fits into this category of intentional 
missing. Again, um, it's one of those things that you don't know what you don't know, right? If you don't know if these are intentional missing cases, then how can we study them and collect data? I so do frustrating. Think it, it is, but I do think it's interesting that a lot of research has come out of the UK. Like they yeah. actually got some solid numbers. And within the UK, they can definitively say that 91% of missing people reports in the UK are closed within 40 hours. That's according to The Guardian. And now LAPD has some great stats too. 80% of all reported missing persons are found or voluntarily returned within 48 to 72 hours. So that's that's a huge amount. That's leaving yeah. a very small percentage to be the worst of the worst, what we think of, that they're victims of murder or kidnapping or other criminal acts or intentional, like they want to disappear and they're not coming back. They're not being found. Right. So we got it's got to be a reminder that not all people who go missing are victims of murders or kidnappings or right. other criminal acts. It just, you know, it can feel like it because we've had a lot of media attention, but sometimes people just need a break, I guess. <laughs> so there are some basic reasons why people go missing in general. One of them certainly very concerning is mental illness. It can just be triggered by like, maybe they have a mental illness that's very well managed with medications or with therapy or treatment, but then an overwhelming life occurrence happens and it triggers them into a, a state. And we have talked about that with Tim and Lance when we were on the There is such a thing as a dissociative state yep. where a person can be so overwhelmed that they go into this fugue and just sort of walk away. Now, there's a lot of controversy. We've done previous episodes that have touched on this and I we don't have time to go into it here. Some of those things you sometimes have a little bit of compassion fatigue because you think, wait, yeah, you were in a fugue state, but then you started figuring it out, but you decided to stay where you were. So right. there's a lot of iffiness around that particular phenomenon. But there can also be miscommunication with family members. It's like you thought that you told everybody in the family that you were going to go on an electronics-free weekend in the mountains, and you forgot. <laughs> You thought right. you did. And that kind of right. stuff does happen. No, it does. It does. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be unreachable. Or this is the weekend that I was planning on going wherever. And I mean, I, I'm much more loosey-goosey than that as I'm making it sound. But miscommunication can be a big deal. Right. I think it also has to do a lot with American culture. It's very funny because, you know, when you look at someone going on vacation in Europe, it's like their e email away messages. I'm going camping for three months. I will return and be in touch with you October 1st. And here in America, it's like, I'm having a kidney removed, but you can text me. I'll be out of anesthesia. I mean, that's the best meme weird. ever. <laughs> it is. I love it. I'm not doing it justice, but like that is a problem that totally. we almost have too much contact here in, as far as our e-communications. But the next category is women may have to disappear due to ongoing IPV or intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. The partner is reporting and they don't know what the plan was, right? So yeah. that's why we actually have domestic violence shelters that are completely closed, will not give out any information, and have to do their absolute best to get the victim of IPV to agree not to disclose their location because it could cause harm to them and harm to the other residents as well. Right. So if the perpetrator is like calling the cops, oh, my wife, she disappeared. It might seem legit. Like he doesn't know what's going on, but he's not in on her plan to run away. Right. So it can look like something that it's not, but I'm sure with some digging, it can 
unfold what's really going on there. Right. We have another phenomenon with members of our geriatric or elderly population that may be moving into dementia or periods of time throughout the day where they really don't have full cognitive function and they just wander away. And it's, you know, in a dense urban area, it's easy to get lost. And unfortunately, sadly enough, this phenomenon is way more prevalent in large urban areas than we even have numbers for because we don't know where they are. And here in LA, everything. Yeah. Here in LA, we have a pretty amazing system for people that are indigent uh, and mentally ill, where they can go into a type of residential housing called a board and care, and it's publicly funded. There are some problems in this system, but overall, the county works really hard to license and register legit board and cares. However, it's a huge moneymaker and unlicensed board and cares pop up all over the place. And they will be the first ones to swoop in when a hospital has hospitalized a Jane or a John Doe that's 80 years old and can't name who they are, any family members, a board and care will be glad to come in and go, oh, we'll take them and house them. It's like, well, now there's a funding stream and they've got a reason to keep them rather than putting in the effort of finding out who they are. It's like the movie, I care about you. It is a lot lot like that. I mean, unfortunately, the incident that movie is based on was Mm -hmm. just as horrific as what she was doing. And that we should actually, we should do an episode on that because that was an LA County employee, I think. Oh, of the actual real case? Yeah. Hmm. We should we'll listen to our that. get or watch our get vocal on that. We did a oh yeah, one. yeah, yeah. So we talk about like IPV, especially for women. That's one issue. But when we talk about the reasons for the intentional missing in, in the form of being a deliberate decision, these are people who just can't see a way out. And for the majority of men, this is a way out of financial problems. It minimizes their own hand in this. It's usually brought on by bad investments, gambling, faking their deaths. And they usually have what we would call a secondary gain plan, some sort of payout on the back end. And I know that Dateline has done several <laughs> really great episodes about these people that come up with this plan to nope out. And they may or may not be planning it in, in uh, tandem with a partner who's going to collect the insurance right. wait for three years and then get a new identity and go to another country. Well, it's interesting when we were looking at some case studies of this, when we were on an episode of Missing with Tim and Lance talking about intentional missing, a lot of those guys that set up those plans couldn't, like if they were like, okay, I'm going to pretend to be dead for a year, they were reaching out to their family within months. Like they couldn't... Yep. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't take care of themselves. (laughs) They couldn't handle it. You know, there's still emotional connections there, I think, as well as just like, okay, it's been two months, twiddling my thumbs. Let's get this on the road. Maybe it's okay. I know. And I think that there are other people that might be more able to do that. And maybe those are the ones that are successful, but the ones that aren't successful sounds like they really did not plan it out well to begin with and maybe be very, maybe they had very low emotional IQs and didn't realize how much interconnectedness really sustained them in their day-to-day life, despite all of these terrible financial situations they'd gotten into. And then the majority, I want to do want to go back and emphasize that the majority in those cases were like gambling debts or fraud or embezzlement. Embezzlement was a huge one. Just couldn't see a way out. You know, most common locales for faking a demise are large bodies of water. Always. Mm -hmm. Always. Oh, he went on a boating trip. 
Or which is his... why every psychic they ever hire to yeah. find someone's like, I see water. It's near a body of water. Because like, they do their uh, research. The planet is 75% water. Good guess. Great job. That's a great guess. <laughs> Madam Tabitha. So there are two categories of decided, I'm just done and I want to start over, and necessary, like I have to remove myself from the situation because of abuse or something comparable. Right. So you're talking about kind of the characteristic of the person that can stay in this life or not. And there's a very interesting book that my husband actually owns. He's had a copy of it since before we were married called How to Disappear Completely and Never Be Found. (laughs) It was written by Doug Richmond in 1986. And it's a fascinating case study because he interviewed hundreds of people who claim to have left their lives, their old lives behind. And he concluded that if you're going to be, a, if, if we're going to kind of hypothetically put together a profile here of someone who can start over and be successful at their identity change, there's a very particular psyche that has to be there. They have to be somebody that has a taste for risk. Okay the ability to think and act quickly and have a strong resistance to reconnecting with their past, be able to just cut off. What's that look for? Tell me what you're thinking. Okay. Uh, Well, certainly there are disorders. I mean, schizotypal or uh, schizoid personality types really either are unable to make those connections whether or not they want them. And then the other one is just really not particularly interested in human connections. But I don't necessarily see individuals on that diagnostic spectrum that get themselves into situations where that seems like the best way out. Certainly somebody with antisocial personality disorder, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, If we're talking about lack of connections or empathy, um, certainly. I think it's not going to be a narcissist because a narcissist is going to be way too much attention. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe they could do it with their new life, but (laughs) um, but the taste for risk, the ability to think and act quickly, I thought, man, a SWAT officer could be a person who has a taste for risk and ability. That's true. Act quickly, you know. We look pumped up on adrenaline and the hyper hyper arousal states that can come from doing that. We look we look for a little spike on you know that that psychopathic category on the MMPI when we're hiring police officers. Um, Not to say they meet the criteria for psychopathy, just a little spike above the normal population. We want people who will run towards danger (laughs) and not run away from it. But he also, in this book that Doug Richmond did, talked about a midlife crisis was also something that really made people take a hard look at where they have come in life. And this sort of, do I start over or not? Do I like what I've done with my life or not? And it's sort of now or never. Um, Less of a eat, pray, love situation and... I don't know, come up with something witty, what it would be to start your life over instead of eat, pray, love. (laughs) Um, All right, keeping it again. I'll keep talking. Uh, But he found that reasons people did it, um, felt them that they were in this situation was unhappy marriages, 
they did it for revenge sometimes. Um, I think that goes hand in hand with unhappy marriages, just like the I'm out sort of thing. And I'm going to leave you with all the responsibilities of this life. Uh, He found that there were those people that lived double lives and had multiple families. And there were a category of people who were just kind of frustrated and bored and, like you said, kind of noped out. Like, all right, there's got to be something else better out there for me. And then, of course, people who were on the lam for crimes that had to really go missing because of the consequences that they were going to face. Um, and there were a lot of people who ended up, when they got caught, using amnesia as an excuse. Right. So, or attempting to. Yeah. Attempting to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very uh, Hollywood, but I guess people reach for whatever they can. I, I love that you bring up the example of that book because I would love to read that and see if any of it would hold up today because we live in such a digital world. I mean, I have a um, an acquaintance that I lost contact with over two decades ago. And although I have seen him at a social function within the last four years, he has no social media footprint whatsoever. Wow. This is somebody who has chosen to not do that for whatever reason. I'll probably, I'll never know. I'm sure. But I find that fascinating that, okay, I guess it is possible to not leave a trail in that way because clearly some people do put effort to that. But then again, if you really were looking and looking, I mean, all you got to do is pay 45 bucks to Spokio and you can find out tons of information on people. So I don't know if like what was relevant in the mid eighties would be relevant today. There's probably a way to do it, but it'd be a lot harder. Yeah. I hypothesize it would be a lot harder these days. And, you know, for that person that, you know, I feel like you just maybe didn't get any social media or anything started in the first place. Like for us, the horse has kind of left the barn. Like, it's hard to undo stuff. No. But if you never ever. started in the first place, maybe like right. you could keep it going. But I don't know. It's yeah. it's very interesting. So what is it? 1984, the American behavioral scientists, they had a study that tracked people in the federal witness protection program, which I think would be fascinating to talk to those yes. people. And that was done to give us an idea into the mind of people who were taking on new identities for whatever reason. And um, it, one of the things that can cause is severe social distress. I mean, that's just a jarring, jarring change in your life Um, and a pervasive sense of powerlessness. Sure. That has got to be horrific. To live the rest of your life like that? Yeah. You know, just always knowing that you can't go back to these connections, that you can't have this identity that you really worked on for so long and that has to shift. Um, what is it? When the social fabric is torn and erased from one part and placed in another, problems arise. I think that mm-hmm. really That's is a great quote, quote that really drills down into it. So a database exists that searches variations of your name, your date of birth, your social security number, and switching those up is a sure way to be found. So don't just flip around your middle <laughs> name and your first name. <laughs> don't use yeah. your mom's maiden name. That's always like... I don't like the best way. I mean, I know in movies, at least the way they used to do it is you would go into the obituary section of a number of newspapers and see if you could find someone that was close around the same birth Age, date issue. Yeah. yeah. Not that this is a, you know, a tip on. We're not encouraging anyone to do this, but <laughs> if you this. have to follow me for new tips on how to erase your this life. Is, this is the advice of private investigators. They're like, if you 
just change a little couple of things, you're going to get found out because clearly, clearly. (laughs) So more um, more often, I think PIs end up working off a profile that they build of that person, you know, like what, what were they like? And then looking for people, what was, I'm trying to think of. I'm thinking like Whitey Bulger, you know, that was, he certainly had out in plain sight for decades, which was kind of amazing. Right. Um, God, this, case i feel like i just heard about it again um what was the case where the guy was so vain and finally they put out information to plastic surgeons across the country and then finally realized that he had had his face chain oh it was um the man that murdered dave navarro's mom oh right remember he was so vain and was on the run and finally, the investigator was like, he cares so much about his looks and is so self-centered, so narcissistic. I'm just going to send a flyer to every plastic surgery office in the country. And they got a hit and it was wow. cer- it was him. It was crazy. That is crazy. I, In my case, I would be like, because clearly vanity is a huge part of my profile, but I also have no, I have no motivation to keep it up. So it'd be like, okay, we're on the lookout for a really vain slob. <laughs> Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't tuck his shirts in, always wears jeans and hiking boots in any situation, whether it's appropriate or not. But he's going to make you take his picture from 20 different angles and different lighting. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Where's my ring light? Where's my ring light? Uh, well, I, I know some deputies who were working back at this time. My parents were before that generation. I was after. Um, But a lot of them said that they heard rumors of John still being in special ops or CIA and had to like re... Mm -hmm. You know, go on. A, had to just had to disappear in air quotes. Well, look as as far. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because in the realm of possibility, that is something that is actually it's realistic. It's it's plausible. Right. I, it likely did not happen, but I did. I saw that you had put that bullet point in, so I wanted to reach out and see if I could get some information. And I just thought, you know, it just seems like there's a lot of better options for disappearing than sure. than doing this and the CIA is does things that we will never know regardless of freedom of information act we will never know what the CIA has been doing because they are really really good at their job i have a relative who is a former fbi and still works in cyber crimes and is very very knowledgeable about this And I spoke to him and I said, so let me just, here's what we're working on today. Let me ask you if this is possible. And, you know, we both kind of came up in our conversation. There are just way too many loose ends in this particular situation for this to be a plausible answer, really. Yeah. So he would have worked as the CIA ops when not when you're a career cop. It's not a nights and weekends kind of job, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This is a guy that, you know, has a particular look, you know, he's like very high and tight haircut, right? super in shape, super, super physical. This is not a person who walks invisible through the world. No, I could see him like always athletic, always in athletic gear, always in cop gear. 
Right, like exactly. not in a suit anywhere, or no. not that CIA officers walk around in suits, but, but you this would is also this guy, right? And this is not a guy who relaxes; like he goes, right. goes, goes, goes. CIA are ghosts, and in fact, there's a documentary that is really great that's around now that talks about CIA and disguising and stuff. And one of the things they say is they want agents that are that don't attract attention; they sure. want them to be ordinary sometimes even verging on homely. It's like someone who is going to have the ability to completely blend in. So they're not going to be dealing with like a lot of extroverts. They're going to be dealing with people who know oh. how to bring their affect down. This I'm so sorry to sky. say, Scott, you're, you, you're just not a candidate for the CIA. Or am I so good? <laughs> this is my act. You're vain. You're extrovert. You're no. You don't loud. blend. You I am don't so blend. Fucking loud. I do not blend. Yes, I'm like, what is that, my cousin Vinny? Oh yeah, you blend. That's such a great line. So look, if if he was working overseas in a clandestine capacity, then all of your government work would be under a cover name. Oh yeah. So like it just it just it just doesn't work out the, yeah. for that. Fun to think about. You know, right. I'm sure there are all kinds of wild well, actually, I heard of more wild rumors, but eh. Well, I mean, we can touch on it. I mean, it could have been an accident. I mean, the theories are fun. Sure. But, you know, we we can't rule out that it was an accident. And because some of the most experienced people in different fields can get really cocky and sloppy. I mean, absolutely. he seems like a very hard charger. But, you know, you can slide down gullies. You know, does he, he was going for a night walkabout. That's pretty extreme in that area. I mean, did he actually, that was supposedly the plan. We don't know if he actually did that. Right. But many people in national parks that go up missing only get lost a small amount of distance from the trails. Mm -hmm. There has been case after case of bodies and survivors found that are only a mile and a half from the trail or a mile and a half from the rescue station. I mean, it just over and over we hear these stories. So yes, in this case, it's different though. Given OJ's high level of competence in living the outdoors, he was a super experienced hiker. He had known this trail back and forth multiple times. And like you said, he was apparently seen heading back towards the parking lot as late as 6 p.m. So he had been out all day long. Yeah. So But once again, like you were saying from that other investigator, did that really happen? Did they see somebody else coming back towards the parking lot that sort of met his his general makeup? Who knows? I mean, all this being said, the dangers of the wilderness, you can't underestimate it. And it's possible that his fate was, you know, the result of a tragic accident. Yeah. So, I, I always think like, okay, well then where's the body, you know, with something like this? It, Cause you got to think of just the modes of death. Yeah. 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 I mean, something. even if, even after, I mean, I was in missing 411, even though I know that's a very controversial documentary, there was some really great research that was brought out about the remains in um, the wilderness is like, is because when, animals go at you they're going to go for your viscera and they're going to tear through your clothing Mm -hmm. but there's going to be bits of clothing and especially the athletic gear that's used now is not cotton it's usually like a wicking blend that's made of some form of nylon the shoes don't rot like the there's this stuff would stay around if if he had you know died in a gully or something or an animal had gotten at him so in smoky mountains which is one of my 
favorite places in the world. It's so beautiful there. Those parks did an analysis of, of over 100 news reports over the past 20 years. Oh, I'm sorry, the past 25 years. And to look at the most common ways people get lost, what they did to survive, how they made it out alive. So 41% of survivors began their trips, which ranged from a half day to 90 days missing by accidentally straying from the trail. Huh. 41% of survivors. Wow. They just strayed from the trail. 16% fell off the trail and couldn't find their way back. And then the most vulnerable group is day hikers. So the survivors of day hikers had warm clothes, some kind of gear or cover in a source of water, which they could either find or that they brought with them. But mm-hmm. most day hikers walk out with like a half a bottle of water right. and they're like little like jeggings or like, you yeah. know, sort Your of crop lightweight then. stuff. Right. Yeah. That's not going to get you through the night here in California or any place else, really, because the right. temperatures can plunge so quickly. And of a hundred, they were saying out of their research and rescue out of a hundred of those events a year, 90% of those were day hikers. Well, yeah. I mean, those are your least experienced people that aren't going to do anything more than a few hours. So, so I couldn't uh find anything on alien abductions. I was thinking that somebody might've thought that he was (laughs) abducted by aliens. I could not find that. I do think it's very interesting though, that this area and I like I love researching like and reading paranormal stuff and going to supposedly haunted places. I just I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, and there has been this sort of repeated urban belief that that whole area is very, very cursed and has dark energy and that's not and that's why the Native Americans from that area don't never populated it that much. But, you know, when I tried, I mean, I've been hearing that for years. Uh So I went on a deep dive trying to find substantive information or interviews about that. I couldn't find anything. So, well, it's called the devil's punch bowl. That's enough for me. Well, like there's an Idlewild, one of the hiking trails is the devil's slide. And it's because, you know, it's, they're going to call it the devil because there's some part of it that's really difficult to, to traverse. Yeah. Yeah. The devil's backbone is a way down Mount Baldy when you hike that from the summit and I've gone down that way twice. And the I'm devil still is here. just leaving his body parts all over and his is. party accoutrements. Why would you leave your punch bowl out? Seriously. <laughs> I mean, well, so uh, I don't know any thoughts of like any of the theories. I don't think this is the type of person that would disappear. There's just too many loose ends for someone to disappear. I think it was foul play. Yeah, I do think he was too experienced, even if he had fallen off the trail. This is some guy that would have, you know, found the few pieces of lightable material, lit it. Mm-hmm. There would have been a fire. There would have been some kind of remains. It just feels like something happened. Yes, I, I think I toggle between that and suicide. Again, there's not a body, um, but like you kind of enlightened me earlier you're like hey there's a lot of crevices there's a lot of places he could have chosen to do it that no one would ever find him and maybe that was his intention and and i want to be respectful to if he's alive or dead or where he is i certainly don't want to be disrespectful to him there are people who get to that point in their lives when they're overwhelmed and they're ready to check out and go and they're not really thinking from or not able to think from an altruistic 
perspective or context. And it, it could be a fuck you. You know, it could be a final fuck you is like, I'm going to leave my truck here yep. and I'm going to make sure nobody finds me. But then there's all these other reports. Like there was supposedly, like, didn't you say that they locked down the truck as a crime scene? And then I read somewhere that there was his gun was on the dash. So they locked down his truck. They actually didn't open it up until like day six when they were closing everything down. Um, And one of the first investigators on the scene says that he swears that his gun was sitting on the dashboard, which is super weird. Very weird for law enforcement. He's not going to leave it there, for one. Is it a message for someone? Is it, you know, a perpetrator that left it there? I don't know. It's just very odd. Or did he just see something that he assumed was a gun and it wasn't a gun? Because when they opened it up, you know, they said really the only things of note was his wallet and his badge. So there's a lot of little things like that throughout the story that is just really strange. You know, I talked about the close relationship he had with his dog. Well, when a canine handler dies, it's not like they reassign him to another, the dog to another handler because they have such a tight bond. They usually retire the dog, but they had... In the meantime, while they were trying to figure out what was going on, they they shipped the dog out to a kennel all the way out in Riverside. I don't I don't know why, but they shipped Bosco the dog out to Riverside, and in two weeks he died. And they said that it was an artery issue, and people say that he died of a broken heart. <laughs> so well, sad. that's possible. I, I absolutely believe that's possible. But there's a theory that. In this, in the big theory that other deputies were involved in John's death, right. that they went out and they murdered Bosco too. So, like I well, said, there's all sorts of little things that could lead to crazy, crazy conspiracy theories. But you have to dig those up for yourself because we are going to wrap it up here. Yeah. But interesting um, story. Interesting story and tragic all the way around. Certainly he was going through something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just here at the end of the episode, I want to reiterate is that this is a very difficult time in our history. And some people are just now feeling the repercussions of the last 18 months as we're moving into the uncertainty of Delta. If you're feeling overwhelmed, please reach out reach out to people, you know, and if you're, if nobody's picking up, they may be hurting too. I mean, we're all kind of frayed and frazzled right now, but please try and get the help that you need. And there are wonderful lines to call their emergency lines, reach out to family, just take care of yourself during this time. Absolutely. We'll put the number for the national suicide lifeline in our show notes for today. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Dr. Shiloh. All right. We'll see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye guys. Bye folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources 
for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.